Hello and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito. We got something special for you today, something different. I recorded a series on the passion and the resurrection and the burial of the Lord. And I thought that it might be interesting to present them in podcast form for Lent. And I think this should be interesting for you all. So enjoy. We're going to address the Passover. The Last Supper and the Eucharist. And they all seem to conflate in one event, one very crucial event. And we're also going to speak about the agony in the garden and the events leading up to the Passover Supper. If you will recall from last time, we spoke very clearly of the gathering dark forces around Jesus, how the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers and the leaders of the people really were waiting for the best possible moment to lay their hands on Jesus. And they couldn't do it when he was surrounded by the crowds uh, because they knew the crowds would have prevented them from taking him because he was so popular. So you have this sort of dark maneuvering going on um, as Jesus's uh, earthly mission is winding down. And Luke especially kind of gives us a flavor of that because for the past two or three lessons, if you'll recall, the past two or three chapters all conclude with, and they sought for a better time to, to get him, or, and they talk, spoke among themselves about a better way to get him, or you know something like that. Well, it's here really that everything kind of comes to, comes to a head. We know why everybody, you know, other than the obvious underlying satanic motive of enmity versus the Christ, we also know that there's some fairly rational reasons why the Sadducees would have a hard time with Jesus. He's rocking the boat. He's uh, going to take away their economic stability. They're afraid. You know, here Jerusalem is at Passover is a powder keg as it is, and, and we have this guy coming in uh, heralded by palms, uh, heralded by the entire population, it seems, as a Messiah-like figure, and the Sadducees are very nervous. You have the Pharisees, who, of course, have been after Jesus from day one for being a blasphemer, for referring to himself as God, you know, for acting as if he were divine. And then you have just uh, various and sundry other groups whose interests tie into these other two groups in one way or another. You know the zealots don't really know what to make of Jesus, even though some of the old zealots have become, uh, uh, you know, disciples of Jesus, Talmudim of Jesus, like, you know, we have one of the apostles who is even named as Simon the Zealot. And so we have, you know, a whole, and then of course we have the Romans, they don't know what to make of what's going on, they would like to kind of keep their distance, but you'll see in next time that Pilate and the Romans are not allowed to keep their distance that Pilate is called upon to render a decision one way or another, even if he doesn't want to. But mostly, the main thing you need to see through a reading of all four Gospels and uh, Paul's rendition of these moments here in the Last Supper and in the, in the, in the, the moments leading up to the Passion is that this is Satan's hour. This is, he is really the true chief evil architect of the whole deal. Little does Satan know that he's fitting in to God's plan for humanity. You know, I'm sure at the time he thinks he's disrupting some 
you know, important thing. But at the time, you know, we have to always figure out that we don't live in a dual universe. We don't live in a universe in which good and evil are equal and pitted against each other, as we see in cartoons or in Hollywood movies. We live in a universe in which we have God, eternal God, who deals with creatures who rebel. And so the, the evil that you might perceive in a creature is something of a, it's a creaturely trait. So we can't always imagine God and Satan on an, on, an, on an equal footing. Never can we imagine that. Of course not. Satan was one of the brightest of God's creations. But because of pride, he rebelled. And because he was one of the most perfect of God's creations, his perfection causes the infinity of his abysmal evil. You know, uh, you've heard it say, you know, um, only intelligent people can be very stupid. You know, and only very intelligent people can be very, very stupid. And in a way, uh, Lucifer's beauty and, and excellence make him the most evil, the most depraved, because he had it all, and he gave it up because of pride. So if you want to pit anybody against Satan, you can pit the Blessed Mother, for example, as a warrior, or, or St. Michael the Archangel. Okay, so it's that kind of, of, of enmity. But in this case, if you will remember, when Jesus went out into the desert to be tempted, Satan was there, he puts him through his paces, and then what does it say? Jesus bests him, and it says, Satan went away to await a more opportune time. Well, this is it. The Greek, even, that opens the chapter uh, well, especially in, uh, in the garden, kind of speaks about the time had arrived and the authority was given to the spirits of evil to accomplish what they would. So you can see it's all part of the plan. Now, the aim, the satanic aim, of course, is what? Simple, destruction, annihilation. That's his aim for all of us, by the way. You know, his aim isn't to make some of us rich and famous and some of us, you know. I mean, his aim is to destroy all of us and if, what, he will use whatever he will. And he destroys us because we are made in the image and likeness of our daddy who loves us, who created us, who gave us his Holy Spirit. And that makes the evil one very angry, you know, very beyond angry. You know, I'm using limited language at this point to kind of describe the conflict that is being set up at this point. Chapter 22 of Luke opens, kind of setting the stage. Now this feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Meaning, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how to get him away from the people. Verse 3, and it's very clear because Luke says it, and Matthew says it, John says it. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Hiscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And basically what we're talking about here, and the Holy Father, Benedict XVI, has actually done me a great favor because he's, he's been talking about Judas lately and uh, kind of the nature of his betrayal and and who, you know, um, historically 
how he could have had maybe a relationship as the only Judean in the in the twelve apostles who were Galilean as the only Judean. He some commentators think he may have had some sort of ties to people in the temple, and so therefore he would have had more of an entree uh, with the uh, powers that be, so that he could go in kind of in a in a credible fashion offer to to betray Jesus. There's lots of reasons behind, you know, if you read books or see movies or uh, study commentaries or, you know, if you want to see all the various motivations ascribed to, G- to uh, Judas, they're very interesting. One of them is an economic motive. He was the thief. He didn't want to get caught. He wanted his 30, his 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, was the price for the purchase of a slave in the Old Testament, for the purchase of a person. And he, or he was disappointed because he was expecting Jesus to be a secular Messiah. You know, and there were plenty of those. And so he's maybe, and some people would posit that by betraying Jesus, he's pushing him, he's kind of forcing him to show his hand. Well, Jesus, you're being too modest. You're being too humble now. I'm going to sell you out to the authority so you'll have to show who you are which, you know, is kind of a circular reasoning. Really, you kind of wonder how, how he would expect that to work. Uh, there are other reasons as well. Um, you know, did he think Jesus wasn't being practical enough? You know, when, when the woman, the woman, the sinful woman comes to Jesus and breaks her alabaster jar and anoints him, Judas goes through the ceiling, if you'll recall. He says, why was this money wasted on you, Jesus? Basically, that's what he's saying. Jesus, you're not good enough for this. Here, let me get this. Let me put it into the common purse from which we knew, we know that he was stealing. And let us give it to the poor. I guess the idea is that we owe Jesus extravagant love sometimes. And not just um, what our duty says. You know, the idea of the woman caught... Or the woman, um, the sinful woman breaking the alabaster jar is to show extravagant love, love that goes beyond what is required. And Judas can't get that in his head. And so we have another clue as to Judas's um, reasons. The main thing you have to keep in mind is this. Judas had free will. He wasn't predestined from the foundation of the world to be the fall guy. Okay? Or to be the cosmic bad guy. Judas, even after he had betrayed Jesus, had a choice. He could have repented. He could have gone to Jesus. He could have asked for forgiveness. He could have been forgiven. We still don't know if he has not been forgiven, because what do we know? We don't know. We do know that his reaction was very different than maybe, for example, somebody else who rejected Jesus. Who was that? Peter. Peter. Peter, well, I mean, he didn't get, take money for him, but, you know, for his betrayal, but his betrayal was pretty public, especially for somebody who was his right-hand man who'd lived cheek by jowl with Jesus for, for three years. How can you all of a sudden you say you don't even know the guy and then you curse on top of that to kind of make sure people understand you're not associated with him in front of Jesus? You know, it's pretty egregious. And yet Peter's response, Peter's reaction to his betrayal and his sin, is diametrically opposed to Judas's, right? Judas basically 
puts himself beyond God's forgiveness. He puts himself beyond God. He thinks he's putting himself beyond God's redemption or forgiveness. We don't know what happens in the last minutes of Judas's life. We do know that he commits the sin of despair, that he commits the sin of saying, nobody can forgive what I've done. Not even you, God. Okay, so that is Judas's main, main sin really is despair. It's despairing of God. It's despair. It's not trusting. It's allowing his own emotions to dictate the situation, his own feelings to dictate the situation. So you have the scene set with Satan entering Judas. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John. And here you have the whole setup for the Passover meal. Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, that would be Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house in which he enters and tell the householder the teacher wants. It's very similar to how he obtains the donkey. You know, the teacher has, oh, okay, the teacher has need. Obviously, these are prior arrangements that have been made. But the main thing you need to, I want you to focus on, just even if incidentally, is it's a very strange sight. And the strange sight is a man carrying a water jar. You would never see a man carrying a water jar in first century Palestine. You probably don't see a man carrying a water jar today in Ramallah, in Gaza, uh, in any of the, of the Palestinian territories. Why? Because that's woman's work. Okay? So if you're a Jew and you have any kind of female relative living with you, a servant, whatever, that's woman's work. So a man doing his own dirty work, in other words, is a man who doesn't have a spouse, probably. Or, you know, so basically he's flagging this man who possibly could have been an Essene. If you remember, the Essenes were the sect that lived almost a celibate monastic life. They lived in celibate communities out in the desert. They lived in holiness. They were watching for the Messiah. And in a way, there was some spiritual affinity, a tuning uh, between Jesus and the Essenes. There are even some commentaries who think that Jesus really sympathized with the Essenes, and that's why, for example, he celebrates the Passover where? In the Essene quarter of Jerusalem. And that would also affect, of course, this, the, the timing of the Passover, which we will, we will talk about in a little bit. So you have this whole idea of some sort of Essene influence on the Passover. And so you have the, the Passover being set up in the upper room, in what will be called later the upper room, which is a room in Jerusalem in the Essene quarter. Now, what exactly are they celebrating? Well, you know, if you were with us during Moses, you will remember the crucial importance of the Passover as the, the preeminent feast of the Jews, as a pilgrimage festival, as the festival that brought Jews to Jerusalem from all over the empire. And it commemorated, of course, the deliverance of the Jews or the Israelites from Egypt under Moses, right? And so therefore, the consummation of the main covenant between the Israelites and God Almighty. All right? So let me give you some more background. During this time, we also have uh, celebrated at the same time. So it's a confluence of three different major holidays. You have the Passover. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is uh, provided for in Leviticus 23, verse 6. 
which had to do with spring cleaning. You know, basically, in order to commemorate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you threw out, you went through your household, if you were a housewife in the first century Jerusalem, and you threw out all your old leaven. Okay, you threw out, and the idea was it reminded the people of throwing out the sin in their lives, you know, kind of cleaning up their sinful lives so that they could start a new life in the beginning year. And then, of course, there was a third festival that was being celebrated. It was a festival of first fruits, also provided for in Leviticus 23, verse 15. And it was the barley harvest. It was an early harvest festival that had many levels. Very simple agricultural meaning, of course, at the base. But it had to do with giving back to God the best and most important first fruits of the earth and of, and of animals. It wasn't giving God the leftovers. It was giving God the first things that came out of the earth and also the firstborn of the flocks. Okay, now, do, do you see anything important here? The confluence of all these festivals and the meaning behind the festivals and how they all come together all on that one weekend? When Paul speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, do you see how he's referring back to the festival of first fruits? The idea that it's the earth giving back to God the best it has to offer. And that Jesus had to spend three days in the earth, almost like a seed germinating, so that the, the, you know, the plant, the, new, the newness would arise that could be offered up to Jesus. And he refers to him as the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But if he's the first fruit, who's the remainder of the harvest? We are. So again, we are called very closely to identify ourselves to, with Jesus, not only not only his, his, his death and his suffering, but his resurrection and all the good stuff that comes after that. The redemption and the eventual life in heaven in, our, in eternal glorified bodies. I mean, this all tracks very closely. So the day of the preparation of the Passover had arrived. And if you will recall in Exodus, there were some pretty stringent requirements set out for the observation of the Passover. The Passover was to be a meal, it was a ritual meal that was to be eaten standing up with your traveling clothes on, with your staff in your hand. There was to be lamb. There was to be unleavened bread, bread made without yeast or without leaven to indicate the haste of the departure of the Israelites. So they didn't have time to let bread rise. Okay. The bitter herbs, it had to include hard cooked eggs and other essential ingredient. For example, haroseth is an, is an element that is used today. It's a kind of a little apple uh, mixture that's mixed up with uh, wine and honey and nuts. And it's supposed to indicate the cement, the mortar that the, uh, the Israelite slaves used to create or to put between the bricks in their captivity when they were called upon to do the big uh, building projects. So you have a very stylized, very ritualized meal, but a very tr honest, a very family-oriented meal. It was usually celebrated in units of 10 to 20 people, family units usually. But in this case, it would have been the band of the disciples. It would have been the apostles with Jesus acting as the father. Because if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, even to this day, you'll see the, the father of the family has a certain role. And you have, uh, anybody been to a Passover Seder? You, and then you have the youngest child 
is called to answer four questions. Why is this night different from all other nights, for example? And then they hide the, ha the afikomen and all the children go looking for it. Anyway, but it's a family holiday. It's a family ritual and apparently was from the very beginning. Now remember, the roots of this festival are quite old because the date of the Exodus is, depending on who you read, as early as 13, 1400 BC and as late as 1100 BC. It's a long time. I mean, at this point in history, we're over 3,000 years from the Exodus, and yet here we go. Every year, the Jews observe the Passover. And as even more faithfully, it was observed in the first century, and it was a huge deal, like I said before. Very, very, very important. Now, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the structure. Well, let me tell you a little bit now about the timing of the Passover. Some gospel uh, puts Jesus observing the Passover on a Thursday, but then the Gospel of John has Jesus dying on the cross as the Passover lamb is sacrificed in the temple. And so you have people saying, well, see, that's a sign. That's a contradiction. That's the, the Gospels don't agree with one another. And, you know, and that's a sign of unreliability. And no, it's not a sign of unreliability. There are a lot of interesting theories. The, the one I think that makes the most sense is that Jesus probably, because of the fact that he was in the Essene quarter, was observing the Passover according to the old solar calendar of the Jews. So you have to think about the, um, the old-fashioned Jews, like the Essenes, who are doing everything by the book, using the old calendar, which wasn't very reliable, to, to celebrate the Passover. And then you have the Sadducees coming in using the new Roman lunar calendar because it works better, because it's more accurate. But the result of that was that you had some people celebrating the Passover uh, two or three days apart from other people. And it was perfectly natural. I mean, it was perfectly normal. It was just as valid. Think about those of us who can't celebrate Christmas Day with loved ones, but celebrate Christmas on the 20th of December or on the 28th of December. I think we've all done that. You know, does it mean any less because we do it on a different day? No. So, you know, again, these are theories, but I mean, there are a lot of very reasonable theories as to why Jesus and his disciples may have celebrated the Passover at a different time than maybe the bulk of the Sadducees in Jerusalem. And so that would make sense. Now, let's go into the structure of the Seder. If you remember from Exodus 12, verse 3, at the exact same hour, that is at the time, at the right time, or here it says, um, verse 14, and when the hour came, that's a very, it, it sounds kind of vague, but really what it means is that at twilight, and at twilight, not only at twilight, not my twilight is different from your twilight. You know, I don't know, I'm hungry, it's twilight, does it look like it? No. No, you held up a string or a hair. And in, when you could no longer distinguish that, that thread or hair, then that was twilight. And still to this day, the, our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters use that to determine when to eat their evening meal during Ramadan. You know, so it's, you know, I guess it's um, before watches, you know, it's an accurate a way as any to determine uh, when to do certain things. So when the hour had come, which would be the time, the appropriate time to sit at the Passover, he sat at a table with the apostles, but he didn't sit at a table like you and I would sit, or even as good old Leonardo da Vinci uh, painted his Cenacolo, painted his Last Supper. It, it, no, they weren't sitting at a table 
with chairs. They were probably, uh, if anything, sitting around a table on the floor, on pillows, or even maybe reclining in the Roman style on the triclinia, on the little sofas, so that their heads would be towards the table and their feet would be away from the table, leaning on the left elbow, leaving your right hand free to, to eat. We don't really know. I mean, we do know that they probably weren't sitting on chairs and tables the way we would think about it today. And it was probably a relaxed environment, also a very sort of sober environment, because they were celebrating basically the consummation of the covenant of the, of the old covenant. Now, little do they know that they were also now going to be inaugurating the new covenant. But the meal in itself is solemn enough to commemorate what's going on. Exodus 12, 3. Each man is to take a lamb for his family without defect. He is to slaughter it at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. And we talked about that before. It's putting the applying the blood of the slaughtered lamb to your, the entrance to your house. Now, what do you think that means? It means that your, the entrance into your life has been anointed by the blood of the sacrificial animal, which means something very, very specific. They, the people, are to eat the meat roasted over a fire and do not leave any of it till morning. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, it says God speaking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Okay, so that's why it's called the Passover. The angel of death actually passed over the houses of the Israelites during the last and final and most gruesome plague, the death of the firstborn. However, all those requirements had to be fulfilled. There's quite a few things. You have to take the lamb, you have to slaughter, it has to be perfect, the bones can't be broken, it has to be a male, it has to be a year old, uh, you, can't, um, you can't cut him. You have to roast them entire. You have to eat the whole thing. You have to eat it standing up. There's a lot of requirements. You have to put the door on the two doorposts and on the lintel. Well, what would have happened if you just put it on the lintel? Well, I don't know, but I wouldn't want to find out. You know, you probably do it as accurately as as you can, right? And so, the the angel of death was passing over the people, allowing them thereby to do what? To live right? To, to, to live to fight another day, to live to run into the desert, to live to come into the desert at Mount Sinai after about two or three months after their exit out of Egypt and do what at Sinai? Have a great ceremony of consummation with Moses, right? It's at Mount Sinai that the great uh, covenant is cons consummated between the people of Israel who have escaped basically with the, you know, by the, the, the skin of their necks out of Egypt, have been delivered from the Red Sea, and finally now can consume this covenant at, at Sinai. And so it's a, it's a covenant that indicates a special, eternal relationship that they are, they are always going to have with the Most High. It won't be something that lasts 20 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. It'll, it's something that goes on forever and ever and ever. Unless or until one of the parties to the covenant dies. So keep that little fact in the back of your mind for later. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the people, and you can see that in Exodus 24, 
verse 6, enter into a very solemn binding covenant. If you'll remember, the covenant was consummated how? Through a blood sacrifice. A, a bunch of unfortunate, you know, animals are slaughtered. Think about the picture. I mean, I think we tried to work it out in uh, when we did Moses, exactly how many animals. It was a lot of animals, a lot of blood, a lot of smoke. But the whole point was you offer God your best, you slaughter these animals, you take the blood, and Moses takes the blood, and what does he do? He sprinkles half of it on the altar. Who, who's represented by the altar? So, okay, think about this. The two parties to the covenant, God and the people. God is on the altar, the people are standing in front of the altar. So that's what Moses is thinking. He takes the blood, he sprinkles part of it on the altar, saying, God, you are bound by this covenant. Just like you, the people, as I sprinkle the blood on you now, are going to be bound. And that's what he does. He sprinkles the other half of the blood on the heads of the people. And what do you think that means? It means, should I break this covenant? May I be like this animal? That's what it means, because the traditional consummation of the covenant was cutting an animal in two and having the two parties of the covenant walk between the two pieces, meaning this is what's going to happen to us if we break this covenant. That's what he does with Abraham. So do you think God is serious about this? We know God is serious about this because this is all his idea, to bind his people to himself even more intimately, to kind of foreshadow the kind of relationship that we will eventually have with the Lord of the universe. But as we all know, it happens in stages. You know, God gives us what we're ready for when we are ready for it. And back then, we probably weren't ready for the kind of relationship that we have with God right now. But sometimes I wonder if we're even ready for the kind of relationship we have, we have with God now. Now. Ourselves. I wonder if we really appreciate the kind of closeness, the kind of access that we have to God now. In the new dispensation. In the fullness of the faith. And unfortunately, you have the Israelites not really understanding what they're doing either because they say, yes, your blood is on our heads. We, we accept this blood. We are going to be responsible. And Moses at that point pronounces some pretty gruesome conditional curses that go with the covenant. The covenant, the essence of the covenant is what? I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God. I will keep you safe. I'll bring you out of Egypt. I've, I've uh, fed you in the wilderness. I've given you water out of the rock. Seems to me that I, God, have held up my part. Now, what about you? How are you going to be my people? Well, by not following after other gods, by following my laws, you know, by doing the things that you need to do, which are put there to protect you, not to make me feel good, me, God. They're put, my laws are put there to protect you to be a bright standard, a guideline, to show you, a st uh, not more than a guideline, of course, the law shows you how you are, what you're missing. And so you have the idea of these curses. Now, I, God, will do this. However, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, well, if you remember the curses uh, enumerated in Deuteronomy 28, they're all there. If you drop the ball, my people... You will lay yourself open to disease and to famine and to exile and to enslavement to other nations, which we know are things that are activated as soon as the covenant is broken. Now, if you recall your facts from Moses and from observing the covenant at Sinai, how long did it take for the people of Israel to break the covenant? What, a week, two weeks? 
A month, how many? 15. 15 days. They were there with a the golden calf. Aaron saying, I don't know why this golden calf just kind of jumped out of the fire. Moses, I don't know. Now, Aaron saying this. Aaron, who should have known better. Right? So you can take Egypt, people out of Egypt. You can't take Egypt out of the people. For a long time. Right? And so you have this whole idea of how the people drop the ball right out of the gate. And so, but they're in this covenant relationship. Now what? Because the ultimate punishment is death for the covenant breaker. So one of the two people has to go. Either God or the people, the covenant breakers. What are we going to do? We just wipe them all out? Or can God die? Can God really die? No, right? Unless he does what? He becomes man. Let's take a break. We've seen how the covenant almost immediately after it's been consummated has already been broken between the Israelites and God from the Israelite part, of course, not God's part. But we also know that humanity as a whole broke a covenant with God a long, long time before. Can you remember what that was? That was a sin in the garden, wasn't it? Original sin, the sin that taints the, gene the, the spiritual gene pool of humanity. The sin that we all are born with, even though we haven't done anything yet, as one of my kids say. You know, well, what, you know, I didn't do anything yet. I'm just a baby, right? Well, the point is, just by virtue of being a member of the human race, you are, have inherited that, um, that spiritual taint of original sin. But, but there, too, almost immediately after original sin is incurred, God, in Genesis 3.15, in the Proto-Evangelion, in the first gospel, in the, the, the first good news, says what? I will pay the price for original sin. Basically, what is he saying? I will put enmity between my seed and hers, the seed of the woman, as represented from Eve all the way down to Mary. And who's the seed of Mary? Jesus. And Jesus is at enmity with the seed of the serpent, who is Satan. And so it's a cosmic battle right here. But we know that we are assured of the outcome because God is sovereign and Satan is not. Remember, God is God. Satan is just a creature. Remember that. Now, God had already kind of let the cat out of the bag in Genesis. We know he will come to the rescue of the human race. He will not let human race perish. But somebody had to pay a price. So just as they had to pay a price for the breach of the covenant at Sinai, they had to, you know, humanity as a whole is forfeit for their original sin of rebellion, of rebellion and defiance against God. And so here you have sort of the parameters shown for what's going on at this particular Passover, which is, of course, for us, the beginning of the new covenant, the beginning and the consummation of the new covenant that we celebrate every time we go to the Eucharist. So keep that in mind as well. The Last Supper and the Passover Supper did not coincide just by chance. It's Jesus 
almost reconfiguring. You know when your computer hard drive crashes and you have to get it reformatted? He reformats the Passover because the law, in a way, had crashed. The overdrive, the, the hard drive had crashed. The, the law was bankrupt at that point. It could no longer save. It could still point the way. It was still good, but it didn't have saving power. It didn't have redemption. The sacrifices of the old covenant were efficacious up to a certain point. But they didn't have the once and for all saving power that the sacrifice of the lamb, that Jesus is. So keep in mind all these things. Remember, the Passover and the Eucharist are just two sides of the same coin. On one side, you have the old covenant. On the other side, you have the reconfiguring of the old covenant, which is the new covenant. So when you go to mass and father at the consecration says, this is my blood offered for the new covenant. That's what he's talking about. The new covenant, which is the new covenant that God enters with with humanity, saying there's been a once and for all blood sacrifice. You don't have to keep repeating blood sacrifices. The sacrifice of Jesus is effective. He is wholly innocent. And therefore, the redemption of humankind comes about in that way because nobody else could have done it. Nobody else could have done it. So remember, we are not saved because Buddha was a good guy. You know, we are not saved because there's some pretty fascinating aspects to the Hindu religion. We are not saved because Muhammad was, was or wasn't a prophet. We are saved because God sent his only son, Jesus, to become incarnated. To pay the price for us. And to institute a sacrament. The word sacramentum in Latin means oath to enter into an oath with us so that every time we celebrate the sacramentum of the Eucharist, we are reminding ourselves of the covenant that God has entered into us, an eternal covenant of salvation and redemption for all of us. Jesus came to fulfill the ultimate Passover and to become the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant. And so he establishes the new covenant as the perfect unblemished lamb required to seal the new covenant. Now, some, I've had people say, well, this is all kind of harsh, isn't it? I mean, if God is God, why does anybody have to die? Why can't he just say, oh, well, let's just be friends. Let's just forget about the whole thing. I'm God, I can do whatever I want. You know, let, I'll just give you a pass. You, the Israelites, you, the human race, let's just be friends. But in order to do that, God would have to renounce himself. He would have to go back on the law that he had promulgated. And God is faithful and God is true. God is truth, as a matter of fact. All truth that we know, all truth that we know derives from truth, the capital T, who sits in heaven. God is redemption. All redemption we know here comes from redemption sitting in heaven. And so God knows 
that he couldn't just wipe the slate clean without violating his own laws. And there's an interesting difference between the way we as Christians perceive God and, for example, faith such as the Muslim faith, Islam, perceives God. In Islam, God is beyond reason. He can do whatever he wants. He can even do things that are nonsensical. He can be cruel. He can be unrighteous. He can be evil because he's God. And he doesn't have to answer into any rational ideas that we might have of him. So therefore, he doesn't really have to be internally consistent or coherent because he's so other, he's so alien, he's so transcendent. For Christianity, God says, I am reason. I am, capital R, reason. And all reason comes from me. And therefore, yes, I will be inherently consistent because I am divine reason as well. Do you understand the difference? God is going to be true to himself because that is how he is presenting himself to us. He's not going to be capricious. He's not going to be arbitrary. He's not going to be volatile just because he can. And that is a function of his great love for us as father. In no other faith is God father quite the way he is in the Christian faith. In, in no other faith is God's son, our brother, and our leader, and our model in quite the same way that he is in Christianity. Again, food for thought. And so the Passover is about to be fulfilled in more ways than one in the upper room. Now let me just draw your attention to the word Passover. The word Passover in English is a corruption of the Hebrew Pesach, running through the Latin Pasch or Paschal, Paschal lamb, ever wonder what that was? If you speak a Latin-based uh, language, you talk about Pasqua as Easter or Pâques in French. In French. That's kind of what, what we're going after. It's a direct uh, rendition of the Pesach, the Hebrew, going into the Passover, of course, which means also to Passover, of, of English, of the English language. On this backdrop, Jesus and his friends, his disciples, his Talmudim, are going to observe a Seder. Now, surely, probably, the Passover meal has, uh, in Judaism, uh, undergone many changes over the, the millennia. I mean, think about how long it's been for this particular ritual meal to have been observed. And I took the liberty of setting something up here in front to show you all an example, it's missing lots of ingredients. I just wanted you to see the basic parts of it. This is the place setting, a typical place setting that you might see at a Passover meal today. Now, a Passover meal a thousand years ago may have had some slightly different ingredients, but probably the basics would remain the same. And the basics, of course, are four cups of wine. Four cups of wine that are all mandated in Exodus. And they, each cup has a significance. Then, then, of course, you have the other very important ingredient, which is unleavened bread. In this case, I have represented it with matzah, unleavened bread. Then, of course, uh, you have the lamb, represented by the lamb bone here on the table. Part of the ritual meal had to do with consuming bitter herbs, which I've seen rendered both as horseradish here in America and also as parsley. Part of the meal had to do with dipping your parsley in salt water, 
a little glass of water with some salt in it to represent the tears shed by the Israelite slaves in, in Egypt. Part of the meal would have composed of the haroseth, as I was telling you before, this little apple concoction made that looks remarkably actually like some, some form of mortar. It's actually pretty good, too. Um, that you would, of course, all these things you would consume, and then hard-cooked eggs as well. There's, there's different ingredients, but the main ingredients are the ones I have told you because each element has a symbolic aspect designed to bring you back to that first Passover. So the tears of the slaves and the mortar that goes between the bricks and the lamb of that first Passover and the 11 bread because they didn't have time to let their bread rise. And of course, the cups, the four cups. Those are really, I'd say, almost the most important element of the whole meal together with the lamb, of course. Now, um, in, in Exodus 6, verses 6, remember I told you that each cup has a meaning? God speaks very clearly. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. That would represent the first cup, the cup of Kiddush, or the cup of blessing. It's the cup with which the meal was inaugurated. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them. That would be the second cup. And then you had the most of the bulk of the meal would occur at this point. Then to conclude the meal portion of it, you would have the cup of Todah, which was also known as the cup of thanksgiving. And Todah is Hebrew, but the Greek for Todah is Eucharisteo, Eucharisteso, Eucharist. It's from which we derive our word for Eucharist. It means thanksgiving, giving thanks. It's probably during this cup, although by no means certain, that Jesus instituted the sacrament of the Eucharist, the sacrament of Eucharisteo. And finally, according to Exodus, the fourth cup, I will take you as my own people and I will bring you to the land. And that is also known as the cup of consummation, the end cup of the ritual, the one that kind of sealed the whole thing. Each of these promises of the Lord corresponds to a portion of the Seder meal and actually to a specific cup of wine taken during the celebration. So remember that the elements, the basic elements of this meal have remained unchanged for thousands of years. However, we have a meal of our own that has basically remained unchanged for 2,000 years. And that's what? That's the reconfiguring of the Passover that we also know as the Eucharist. So when they invite you to a Passover Seder, you should say, yes, I would love to go. Think about, you know, they're not thinking about it, of course. You know, the people invite you. But if you think about this, the crucial significance of the Passover and how it's been sublimated into the Eucharist by the sacrifice of the Lord. Now, Let's talk about the significance of the Eucharist. I've kind of told you a little bit about the structure of the meal. I've told you about the significance of each cup. Now, 
When Jesus fulfills the Passover of the Jews, he's doing so much more than fulfilling the old covenant. He is inaugurating the new covenant in a form of sacrifice that was not unknown in the Old Testament. It was called a memorial sacrifice. The Greek word is anamnesis, the anamnesis, or the memorial, but not memorial in a way that it's a, it's a, it's a symbolic reenactment, for example, or, I mean, you know, you, you would know in our separated brethren traditions of the Lord's Supper, for example, whereby the bread and the wine are only presented as symbols or as props, in a way, in certain churches uh, to kind of remind us or bring us back to where they were then. For us, we know, as Catholics, it is so much more. What is the bread? What is the wine for us? Who is the bread? Who is the wine? They are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Son of God, of God himself, of the Lord of the universe. And in fact, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in anamnesis, in remembrance, as a memorial for me. And this is what the earliest rendition of the Last Supper, of this language, of the language of the uh, Eucharistic institution, is given by Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, written in the late 40s A.D., first century. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in anamnesis, in remembrance of me. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks condemnation on himself. In other words, this is serious stuff. This is my body. This is my blood. This is not a symbol. This is not a token. This is a representing, not a representation, but a re-presenting of the sacrifice of the Lord. And we, this is a memorial, this is also a memorial sacrifice along the lines of the sacrifices given in Leviticus 2. You can look them up, the kinds of sacrifices. There were many sacrifices offered for many, in the Old Testament especially, offered for many different occasions, right? You had grain, oil, wine, bread or meal, blood, and memorial sacrifice. So Jesus is fitting this sacrifice into the old schema of the Old Testament, but also bringing it into the future with the New Testament by, by establishing this once and for all memorial sacrifice. The sacrificial offering of Jesus is drawn into the present every time the Eucharist is being celebrated. The main thing you need to keep in mind is this. God is pure spirit. God is above matter. God has been matter. Jesus was matter and spirit. But as he is now, both for God and for the spirits in heaven and for the spiritual world, there are no restrictions of space and time because the restrictions of space and time are things that have to do with matter. If you're in a body, you're going to be aware of the passage of time and you're going to be confined by the limitations and the restrictions of space. But if you are a spirit, those things are meaningless. So what does that mean? It means that the time-space continuum is collapsed before God and that all of history and all of time are before God right now. So that right now, before God, Adam and Eve 
are blowing it again. And right now, before God, Jesus is representing his sacrifice, is presenting a sacrifice as if for the first time. But then also, right now, before God, Jesus is coming in the second coming and the end of the world and the end of time have occurred. Everything is before God at the same time. It's a hard concept for us to understand. Why? Because we're finite. We're human. We are creatures of matter. But the idea is that in heaven, Jesus is constantly presenting himself as the lamb who was slain on behalf of humanity to the Father. And so that when we celebrate our Eucharist on earth, we are in a way reaching down and drawing down a bubble from heaven, just a little bit, just a spot of heaven is coming down and, and touching earth during the Eucharist. So think about all the Eucharist celebrated all over the world and think about how many times heaven comes to earth because that is how we should look at it. Heaven comes to earth. Does it feel like heaven comes to earth sometimes? When we're sitting next to the kid who's screaming, you know, and the lady who's trying to answer her cell phone in front of us and, you know, the people who are doing the 100-yard dash to the door. But it is. And that gives you, I guess, an insight into who God is. God is Father. God is, God sees us in all our limitations, in all our sin. And he loves us. And he makes himself humble. Can you imagine the humility it would take for the God of the universe to, to reduce himself to a piece of bread that could be subject to abuse? Think about all the abuses that you've heard of the Eucharist. Think about all the sacrileges you've heard of. Think about all, and just without even thinking about sacrilege, think about all the people who receive the Eucharist with having no idea of who they're receiving or what they are receiving. With no preparation with no confession, with no period of fasting, inappropriately dressed. I mean, that's, I guess, the least. I mean, when you think about the great sins in the world, maybe that sounds like nitpicking. But really, when you're thinking about who you're dealing with, how can we just show up, gripe if it goes over 45 minutes, sing a song, receive the Lord of the universe, and go home? Think about it. If we really understood what this sacrament is, we would all be there on our knees for an hour afterwards. And I'm the first one to tell you that's, that's unrealistic, isn't it? Right? Because life intrudes. And, and the kids want to go home, and so-and-so is waiting, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. But the, but the main point remains, don't let that steal from you that moment of what you are receiving. And, and what for? And what it represents. Because this is what God has for us. This is what it means by having the fullness of the faith. This is why, as much as we love our separated brethren, we need to tell them, please come up for a blessing if you want to participate. Please participate with us. But before you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus, please make sure you know who you're receiving. Please make sure you know this is not a token of, of uh, brotherhood. This is not some horizontal remembrance. This is heaven coming to earth. And so if you want to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, please, by all means, join us in the church. Receive instruction. Figure out what you know, what you understand, and then receive. You understand why it's not, it can't be that, 
a token gesture, it means too much. It means too much for us. Now, the main difference between the Old Testament memorial and the New Testament memorial is that the New Testament memorial represents Jesus' death for our sins in a sacramental way, which is fully functional and effective. Remember, the definition of a sacrament is effects that which it signifies. That comes from just a classic definition of what a sacrament is. A sacrament represents what it actually makes happen. So therefore, it's not a symbol. A sacrament is an oath. It's an oath by God saying, I promise you, I swear to you, what you are receiving now is true. So in baptism, we are truly cleansed. In confirmation, we truly receive the Holy Spirit. In the Eucharist, we truly receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the sacrament of matrimony, we are truly bound to that person for all time. In the sacrament of ordination, our very nature is altered our very person, who makes us, what makes us a person is altered to reflect a new reality. Sacraments are incredibly effective, incredibly powerful. And this, of course, is the most important of all the sacraments. It's the Eucharist. So in Exodus 12, let me point to another requirement. That same night, the people are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, and if some is left till morning... You must burn it and eat in haste. They had to select the perfect lamb. They had to roast it. They had to, they had to go through all these hoops in order to make the sacrament effective. Now, if they had left a part out, like we said before, like they'd left you know, the lintel and not the one-door post, or let's say I'm a vegetarian and I'm an Israelite living you know, 3,000 years ago and I want to get out of Egypt, but I don't really want to eat that lamb. What do you think is going to happen when I wake up the next morning? I had to consummate that lamb or else somebody in my household is going to wake up dead. And it's the same requirement for us in the Eucharist. We must consume the Eucharist. We must eat the Eucharist and make it part of us. Or rather, we're not making Jesus part of us. We're becoming part of Jesus. That's the way we should look at it. That with each Eucharist, we are more and more fully integrated into the body of Christ, into the body of Jesus. And so the sacrifice was activated by the consummation of the entire animal. That sacrifice could have stayed there and been totally ineffective unless it was consumed. And the same thing for the Eucharist. We have to receive and consume the lamb in order to accept salvation. No bystanders, no spectators. This is not a spectator sport. No memorials, Lord's suppers, no symbolic participation. We have to be there and participate to the very core of our being. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the sacrifice. Keeping the Passover meant eating the lamb. The ultimate goal of the Eucharist, therefore, is the, is the restoration of the communion with God. So again, if I were to sum all this up, I would say actions, not symbols, are required. Does this mean that Jesus is being slaughtered again and again and again and again and again and again each time the Mass is offered? No, of course not. It means the once and for all, and for all sacrifice of Jesus is brought back to memory. It is represented, but it is a once and for all sacrifice.
Now, let me just uh, close all this that we've talked about today by reading further the institution of the Last Supper. When the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled into the kingdom of God. And then he takes the cups and he makes the institution. Finally, verse 20, and likewise the cup after supper, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So when you go to Mass and you hear Father say, this is the cup of my blood given for the new covenant. Do this in memorial of me. Think about the new covenant. Think about the significance of the new covenant. Think about it was either us or the other member of the covenant that had to die. And he stepped in and he took our place because he didn't break the covenant, we did. So every time we take that, let's remember that is the satisfaction of the new covenant. And then he speaks about Judas, verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So think about all that has just transpired. The disciples are there at table. You can just see them drinking their wine going. You know, this isn't going the way it usually goes. What's he doing? Right? And just to show how clueless they are, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Oh, that, that has a lot to do with what he's been talking about. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. And this is where there is the foot washing ritual instituted in John, because Jesus is making a point. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves for which is the greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? I am among you as one who serves. And therefore you have a kind of a flipping of the whole paradigm of the servant leader. It's from here, this concept right here, kind of a hitherto unknown concept. And here also you would trace the institution of the priesthood to these words as well. I am among you as one who serves. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Finally, verse 31, Simon, Simon, he zeroes in on Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. How'd you like to be told that? <laughs> to have you single. This is, think about the Greek in which it's presented. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. But I have prayed for you. Let me just quote it exactly. Satan demanded to have you, it's plural actually, you all. That he might sift you all, all of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, you Peter, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, turned again from what? From your betrayal, right? Strengthen your brethren. And why is he telling that to Simon? Do you think he has something special reserved for Simon? Or is he just kind of singling him out because John went to the bathroom? 
I'm serious. That's the kind of thing you hear. Right? Did, did he really have something serious for Simon? Did he have a special task for Simon to strengthen his brothers? Why Simon? That's my question. Why Simon? Simon was pretty unsuitable, wasn't he? Simon always spoke first and thought later. Simon always had his foot in it one way or another. That's why I love Jesus picking Simon. Because he picks one of the more human beings. We can relate to Simon. We, we can kind of hang out with Simon. We know, you know, we've had dinner with Simon. We know him. You know, he's got feet of clay. And yet, God works with crack pots, doesn't he? He works with straight lines. He writes straight with crooked lines. And, and Peter and Simon said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and death. Boy, is he wrong, isn't he? He said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. And there's hope for all of us because God knows our limitations. He knows what we're going to go out and do. He knows how we're going to disappoint him, and yet he loves us anyway. And he's there waiting with a towel and a glass of water for us to come back in to wipe our face to refresh us, to restore us, to put us back on the road. That's why despair is such a sin. We shouldn't be despairing. God has never given us any reason to despair. Despair is a sin because we don't, we're telling the God who shows us this extravagant degree of love and care and sacrifice, and we're saying, I don't trust you. Catechism 1340, by celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection, the new Passover is anticipated in the Supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final Passover in the glory of the kingdom. So there, a lot more could be said. Let me just tell you this. In first century Palestine, the marriage supper occurred when the bride finally showed up. All right? When, actually, when the bridegroom always showed up because the bride was there waiting. The bride and the bridegroom met a year before exchange. The bride price probably met for the first time, accepted one another by pouring ritual uh, cups of wine, and then went home. He went to prepare a, a place for his bride. Usually, it was adding another room on to his father's house. Maybe it was building a house somewhere else. And then when he was ready, he'd come back for the bride. Why do you think Jesus identifies himself so much with the, bride, with the bridegroom? Because that's a situation that really kind of closely identifies the situation we are in now. We have been betrothed. We, the bride of Christ, the church, has been betrothed. The bride price has been paid. The bridegroom has gone home to prepare a place for us. And then he's going to take us home. And what, we're, what are we going to do when we get there? We're going to sit at the heavenly banquet, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Read Revelations 20, 21 sometime. That's what expects us. That's what awaits us. So every time we attend the Eucharist, remember, it's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet when Jesus will come back for his bride when the bridegroom will return and the great wedding feast will be achieved. Are we ready? How have we spent the time that he has left us? Because believe me, he didn't need the time 
We need the time to get ready, to be prepared, to be watchful. Are we the kind of spiritual brides that will bring honor to the bridegroom? Let's stand up, and I'll read you this last piece out of Revelations. Revelations 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are they who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Mm-hmm.